Greetings, my name's Adam Draycott. It's great to be sharing God's word with you today. We're continuing our series in the parables of Jesus. Today we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 33. But before we go any further, let us stop and pray. Loving Father, we thank you that we can come together, that we can open up your word. Uh, We ask that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds. Show us the glory and wonder that is your son, Jesus. Lead us in the way of faith and repentance. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Was there ever a braver person than the one we call our Lord Jesus? Right in people's faces, at the risk of being arrested and executed, he exposed the evil intentions of the self-engrossed leaders of his generation. Notice the passage we're in today. Notice where it ends. With the very same leaders, the chief priests seeking to arrest Jesus. Verses 45 and 46. Notice they're going to live out precisely the kind of hard-hearted rejection that Jesus condemns in the story. Since Jesus entered Jerusalem, his words and actions have been strong. In the temple, in chapter 21, Matthew's Gospel, he has overturned tables belonging to the traders. He's driven them out. One commentator says the temple complex that he's cleared is 35 acres of area. And the evening temple sacrifice was probably suspended as well. That is a lot of trouble just right there. And words? Well, surrounding this parable, we've got a story about a fig tree. You know how that ends. A story about two sons. Another story about a wedding feast. And they all speak of God's judgment. They're all strongly directed at the religious establishment of the day. As Jesus sticks it up them big time. Today we're going to unpack the parable of the lousy tenants. And as we do that, come with me. I need your help. The owner of the vineyard is who? It's God. Jesus is riffing on Isaiah, the passage that John McGuffick read out for us just a moment ago. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts It is the house of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines that he delights in. Which means that the ungrateful tenants who work the vineyard, the people tending to God's people and caring for God's people, the people that Jesus has in his sights are, they are Israel's leaders. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 14 says, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. So the vineyard owner is God. The vineyard is God's people. Who are the servants that he sends in this parable? Well, they're the prophets. Verse 35. One is beaten, one is killed, a third is stoned. Uh, That's symbolic of the experience of the Old Testament prophets, prophets like Jeremiah. 
And Jesus will say something similar at the end of chapter 23 about the treatment of prophets as he weeps over Jerusalem. But these servants also include John the Baptist, killed at the hands of the wicked rulers over Israel, King Herod of Judea, and mentioned as recently as verse 32 by Jesus. And maybe as Jesus shares this parable with his cousin John the Baptist uh, in his mind, there's poignancy as he remembers his cousin beheaded by Herod. And so maybe we're to feel the tension and the serious gravity here. And we haven't even got to the end of the parable. For there is an even bigger crisis. Because this parable ends, this story ends, with tenants treating the vineyard owner's son with contempt and disgrace and murder. And the implications... Well, Jesus puts it back on them. Verse 40, he says, what will he do with those tenants? What will the vineyard owner do with those lousy tenants? And the answer, of course, is unanimous. Can you see it in verse 41? They respond to Jesus. They say, the master will put those wretches to a wretched end, a miserable death. And he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the fruit. Of course he will. Blasted wretches that they are, of course he will. Everyone gets that. Everyone sees it. Can you see the listeners of Jesus? They're all nodding. And then here comes the punchline. Down in verse 43, Jesus speaks very plainly, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Some punchline, okay, maybe not a punchline, more like a punch on the nose from Jesus. Which means that the abusive leadership of Israel's leaders, whether it's a king, a chief priest or a Pharisee, uh, their leadership, it's all going to come to an end. And what is the trigger here? What is the foundational offence? The foundational offence that is being underlined here is the rejection of the son. Uh, The rejection of the servants, well, that is bad enough, that's for sure. But do you see the tipping point where the patient really does run out, where we reach a point of no return? It's their response to the heir, the father's own son. And we know the son. Who is the son? The son is, if you said Jesus, you are correct. Have a look at verse 37. When it says, last of all, it means sending the son is the final act. Last of all. There's no one else after this. This is the last chance. It gets you wondering, how would you have gone after the first rejection? After they first rejected the messenger? Or the second messenger, maybe they stoned him. How would you respond after that? Or the third messenger, who they probably killed. Would you put up with this? 
Would you have put up with it after the first time or the second time? Would you dish out justice of your own? And with each rejection, would your measures become more and more severe, more and more threatening? Uh, I worked as a property manager for many years. If the rent went unpaid, that would mean a phone call, followed by probably a letter, followed by 14 days' notice, followed by a visit to the tribunal, and then the sheriff would be called and the locksmith would arrive at the same time and it would be all over. They'd be out. Here in Palestine, any other ordinary landlord, what would they have done? Would they have booted them out after the first rejection? Surely after the second... They would have been punished as insolent and rebellious and murderous to harm or murder the servants of the landlord. It's outrageous. And as sure as anything, he wouldn't have sent his son unarmed, vulnerable. But of course, this is no ordinary landlord, is it? Look at verse 37. They will respect my son. And we all go, no, they won't. Is the owner naive at this point? Is he hopelessly optimistic? Or is Jesus pointing out what should be plainly reasonable? Is this a normative, reasonable expectation that the son would be respected? And the answer is, of course, yeah, for any normative, reasonable situation? Yeah. And then maybe it gets you thinking about the incarnation. You know, you know, the incarnation when God becomes man in the person of Jesus and then see him come, the son, the heir comes to his people Israel. And what should be the reasonable response to God turning up, do you think? In the flesh, when the Messiah comes, what should be the reasonable response? At the very least, wouldn't it be respect? At the very least, surely. I mean, in verse 41, those listening to Jesus all seem to agree that to treat the heir with such disgrace must mean that a line is drawn in the sand and they must be evicted. They must be brought to a wretched end. Actually, that's what they say. And now can you see the tragedy? Because what they don't see is, they don't see that rejecting Jesus himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah that's come to him, is the climatic, climactic act that leads to judgment. They don't see that. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. This is a parable. Do we see the massive mistake, the tragedy, and the offence that it is to God to discard his son like he is nothing, like he doesn't matter? And to underline this, he quotes from Psalm 118. 
pops up in different parts of scripture, this line. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I've mentioned my dad is a bricklayer. He loved it so much he'd lay bricks on Saturday mornings. Garden beds, yep, they were brick. A dog kennel, yep, it was brick, complete with tiled roof. Even under our cyclone fence that went around the front boundary, under the cyclone fence there was enough room for, yeah, you got it, bricks, brickwork. It's still there. And even when the timber failing, <laughs> even when the timber paling fence fell down, Dad's solution, no, it wasn't another timber paling fence. You got it right. It was a brick wall. And guess who his labourer was on a Saturday morning? It wasn't my four sisters or my mother. It was me. And did you know that there are Good bricks and bad bricks. It's true. And Dad would look at each brick individually and he would check out the parts of the brick because bricks, they have parts. We have the stretcher, the frog and the end. Okay? And bad bricks would be cast aside onto the rubbish pile they would be discarded but of course in Palestine they weren't oven baked bricks they were stones and Jesus is saying that stone that's been rejected in verse 42 that stone that's worse than an offcut it's worthless and useless that stone that powerful people dismiss and toss aside he's saying that's me and God, he will do marvellous things through me. He will give me a kingdom. I will be the kingdom's very foundation stone. Not an offcut, but the cornerstone. The stone without which the wall, the building cannot stand, but collapses. The most important piece in the whole construction, the cornerstone, Jesus is it. Not rejected by God, but the essential piece. In fact, verse 44, there is a danger in ignoring this stone such that he can't be, he won't be ignored. Verse 44 says, Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Do you see what that verse says? It's saying that Jesus cannot... He will not be ignored. It's telling me that it's a dangerous thing to ignore Jesus lest you be crushed or lest uh, you fall over him or stumble on account of him. It's a dangerous thing. And so the text then asks me, well, what are you doing with Jesus? What is your response to Jesus? Have you welcomed Jesus into your life or do you keep sending him away and pushing him back and telling him to get lost and to keep his nose out of things? I mean, if you're in a farming accident, heaven forbid that should happen, but if 
Imagine you're in a farming accident and you needed help and someone turned up who could render help. Would you send them away and say, polite, oh, no, thanks, I'll be right. I'll be fine without you. Or would you welcome them? Of course you'd welcome them. And then you would get the help and the aid that you need. See, if the creator of the universe sees our need is so great that he sends his son so that we might be forgiven because that's our need, so that we might have peace with God because that's our need, and that we might have purpose and death done away with and instead eternal life, if that is so, then have you or will you welcome the Son? Or have you said no to that and you just keep pushing him away? Why would you do that? Is it because you're proud? Is it because you think all of this is all yours, your own little kingdom that you're the king of? You're the boss, you're in control, and no one can tell you otherwise. Then if that is you, then you're like Israel's leaders who thought that they could steal for themselves a kingdom of their own and keep it to all... Keep it to themselves and and not share it with anybody and not acknowledge uh, the sovereignty and rule of the landlord who we know to be God. Seemingly blind to a basic truth that it is God's. It is all God's. Including you, whether you are on good terms or not good terms. And God seeks an account. The good news is that God is patient in a way that we are not, but there is an end to God's patience. And so the invitation is to come to the Son. Don't reject Jesus with your indifferent, apathetic, shall be right, mate, attitude. It doesn't work. No, come to the Saviour. Embrace the Saviour, love the Saviour and bear much fruit for him. That's the encouragement here. Because the Master is coming and we must render account. The Son will return. And we need to reckon with that. We need to be ready for that. And the way to be ready for the son's return is to welcome the son into your life. As we continue, see that the new tenant is Christ's apostolic church. It's all through Ephesians, but particularly chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Let me read it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is the goal. And so let us be careful to produce the fruits of trust and just living that God expects. Let us grow in Christ. 
Let's be about proclaiming him. Let us keep in mind all of God's abundant kindness to us that we see in this parable. Have you seen the kindness in the carefully prepared vineyard? You can see it in verse 1. A vineyard that lacks nothing, the walls, the press, the tower, the ever-patient dealings of a landowner pleading for a response. A landowner who will even send his son, a son who will die. The very same son who speaks the words of this parable and who is on his way to taste death for everybody, Hebrews 2, chapter 9. And so he gives us every reason for us to respond in faith and gratitude every day.